Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Heather. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We are in the middle of a series walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And I would remind you as we come to this passage, this is Jesus' vision for the kingdom of heaven. In this sermon, he's trying to teach us how to live in the kingdom of heaven. And if you follow Jesus, then he said, you'll be in the world, but not of the world. That's the way he describes it in the Gospel of John. You'll be in the world, but not of the world. In other words, we will live in this world and throughout this life, but it's not our home. That we're immigrants who, by believing in Jesus Christ, have become permanent residents in a foreign country, the kingdom of heaven. And just like all immigrants, we have to learn a new way of living, new priorities and values and practices. And this is especially true, as you might well imagine, with how we deal with our money and our material possessions. Uh, And that's what we have to talk about this morning. Uh, We live in a world, or I should say, we believe that this world is passing away, that all of this will soon end, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And we believe that this new heavens and this new earth is coming. That in Jesus, it is coming. Indeed, it is broken into the here and the now. And when you believe in him, you experience a change of citizenship. You become a citizen of heaven. Your life is there. Your your hope is there. In a, in a very real way, you are there, Paul says. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, as we just sang a few minutes ago. Already. We're already there. And so the Bible means for that to bring perspective to everything that we do in this life because this is like a vapor that's here one minute and gone the next, but heaven is forever. And as we live in the kingdom of heaven, according to its priorities and values and practices, we have begun to live eternal life now. That's what Jesus is teaching us, that the life of heaven is available to us now. He's teaching us to take our money and our possessions and to use them to gain heavenly reward instead of using them to gain a great life here and now. That's what this passage is about this morning. So, uh, you know, we have to talk about the elephant that is in the room if we're going to be faithful to this. And I I have to confess to you my own struggle with materialism and with love of money, which has followed me my whole life. I grew up in a very fluent family. Um, We had, you know, beyond everything we needed, we had just about everything we could possibly imagine wanting. I drove a BMW in high school. Um, you know, and so all of my life, this has been, this has been an issue I've had to deal with. And, and the reality is, is, is it burdens me. It's very hard for me. I mean, I, I, I was physically ill this week. I don't know if it's because I was physically ill in anticipation of having to stand up here and talk about this. Um, that, is, that is a possibility. 
Um, but just know that, that, that for me personally, I, wrestling my heart into making real sense of what Jesus is saying is hard. And, and the other fact is, is that I know that I stand on this stage and look out into a crowd that includes a professional baseball player. Uh, we have heart surgeons. We have dentists and politicians and lawyers and a bunch of successful business people in this church. Um, and so we are, in many ways, the antithesis of what Jesus means when he says you must become like little children. Uh, by by the nature of just who God has made us to be and, and who he's gathered together in this church. And so I struggle to even know where to begin or how to have this conversation, to be honest with you, but I believe with all of my heart we have to have it. And so that's the task that's before us this morning. One story to illustrate why this is so difficult. I, I read a story this week about a man named Robert Kane, who in 1635, he belonged to the first congregational church in the city of Boston. And Robert Kane was disciplined by his elders... <laughs> Because he was selling, he was a merchant, and he was selling his goods at 6% profit. Um, and, and that sounds like a very strange story. Uh, and, and, you know, what, what in the world does that have to do with anything, really? Except that I find it fascinating that, that I was in a meeting with a bunch of people that I really uh, think are very, very spiritually mature, and I trust them a great deal. And I just threw the story out there, and I said, can you imagine? I mean, what that church was doing back in 1635 is it was saying, we know materialism and greed is a real danger for us, and so we better set some limit. We better have a conversation where we can say, you know, let's have, let's have a conversation about what's appropriate and what's not, and what is helpful and what becomes sinful, and let's put some guidelines into place so we can hold one another accountable. And I said, and I said to this group of men, I said, you know, can you believe you believe that? And they called me a communist. Jonathan was there. He can tell you. I mean, I, you would not imagine what came up out of the hearts of the guys in those room. And the You can't tell me what to do with my stuff. And maybe I can't, but I believe Jesus can. And you see, the problem with money... The problem with money is it's different. The problem with materialism and with greed is it's different than any other temptation, okay? And I've said this, and this is kind of funny, but, you know, when you're committing adultery, you know you're committing adultery. Hello? You don't just look, oh, you're not my wife. Oh. (laughs) Sorry. Right? When you're committing adultery, you know you're committing adultery. It doesn't sneak up on you. But the thing about greed, the problem with money is it's not like adultery. The problem with greed and materialism is is when you're greedy and when you're being materialistic, you don't know it. Money's deceitful. And so, that, and so it just means we need one another. If you're committing, when you're committing greed, you never know. And, and so, you know, we need one another. And so somehow we've got to begin to have this conversation. And, of course, I'm not suggesting anything like what Robert Kane experienced because I like my job. Um, but can you imagine, can you imagine what it would look like for us as a people to get together and say, we've got to deal with this issue. And we've got to come up with a way to help one another be faithful. I hope that's part of what we can do this morning. And so three things I want us to see from this passage from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And they're, they're just this. First, I want us to see the power of money and material possessions over us. Secondly, why money and material possessions have such power? And thirdly, then, how can we break their power? So I want us to see the fact that money and material possessions have great power over us. I want us to see why that is and then how we can break their power. So let's just do that together. And it's the three points in your outline. And you can follow right along. So let's start. Why, why, or excuse me, what is the power of money and material possessions? 
and why are they so dangerous? I want to go down to verse 24. I mean, we might as well get to the issue right at the beginning. And I want you to look at the last sentence in the passage where Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. Now, the word translated money, really, probably in your Bible, there's a footnote, and it'll refer you down, and it'll tell you that the word is really mammon, which if you have a King James Version or one of the older translations of the Bible, it still is translated mammon. And that word mammon is a transliteration of an Aramaic word that has the same root, interestingly, as the word amen. Amen means it is true, or I'm certain about that, or yes, yes, and so... The word mammon comes from that same root, and the word mammon literally means to entrust or to make certain. So mammon refers to earthly riches or material possessions or pieces of property or whatever it might be that was set aside to ensure future security. Uh, It's something very similar to the social security system in our country or a 401k account or a life insurance policy, something like that. Mammon is whatever you're putting your faith and your trust in for the future. That's what Jesus is saying. It's whatever you're hoping in, whatever you're putting your confidence in, um, in order to provide for you and to take care of you and to give you the life that you want. And this is, if you see, this is where Jesus just takes exception to the whole idea. I mean, because whenever we start trusting or hoping in a savings account or a piece of property or family relationship or anything else other than God to save us and provide for us, then we're creating what we would call idols. We're creating rival gods. Then mammon becomes mammon, capital M. And what Jesus is doing here is he's person. If you look in the original language, which obviously you can't if you've got the English in front of you, but in the original language, Jesus is intentionally personifying money. It's money, capital M. It's mammon, capital M. He, in other words, he sees mammon as a spiritual entity that makes a claim on us and seeks to enslave us and to draw our affections away from him. It's interesting, John Milton in Paradise Lost uh, tells the story of, of the, the war council that happens just as the angels have fallen from heaven to hell. And there are a number of kind of senior demons that stand up to give counsel to the rest of the host there about what they should do. And if, in Milton's classic, one of the senior demons' name is Mammon. Now, What both Jesus and John Milton understand, and what they're getting at, is that there's something very powerful about wealth and material possessions. They can give you a sense of security and identity that really we're designed to get only from our relationship with God in Jesus Christ. I mean, money can provide for you. It can make you feel safe. It can get get you out of most fixes. It can give you an identity. It gives you instant credibility. social, Social currency... I mean, that's the power of money and material possessions. They easily become gods. And Jesus describes God and mammon, if you look there in verse 24, as two masters who both demand our total allegiance. Mammon, in other words, refuses to come into your life without claiming your absolute loyalty. And if you give your heart to it, to serve it, then what Jesus says is is you will eventually grow cold toward God. And in the same way, Jesus refuses to come into your life without claiming your absolute allegiance and loyalty. And if you give your heart to him, to love him, then you will eventually begin to hate mammon. Verse 24, that word master. 
literally means owner or possessor. It is the thing or the person that to which you belong. Your master is what has control of your life. It's what calls the shots in your life. It's the object of your heart's greatest allegiance. That's what a master is. And Jesus says you can't have both God and money as your master because both God and mammon are so jealous for supremacy in your heart that you can't love and serve them both at the same time. Look at the words there. You'll either be devoted to one, and that word means to cleave to or to hold or to embrace. It really is the word for a marital embrace. You will, you will have to, you will be, you'll have to choose to be devoted to hold or to embrace or to cleave to God or to mammon, and then the result will be that the other person you will, the other thing you will despise, he says. And that word means to think little of or to have a low opinion of. And as I think about the culture in which we live in, I don't think I have to, you know, work hard to get you to agree with me that the overwhelming majority of people in American culture are devoted to making as much money as possible and think very little about God. And very few people are devoted to Jesus and his kingdom and think very little of money. I mean, most people in our culture highly regard wealth and status and material possessions and are unaffected by God. Nobody, hardly, that I know is unaffected by money. That's our cultural context, but the kingdom of God is something altogether different. And so... To sum this up for you, I would just say, if your hope and your confidence are in God and Jesus, then you will cling to him. You will. This is what Jesus is saying. You will hold fast to him. You will embrace him in a marital embrace. And the consequence will be that you'll have a very low opinion of money. It will matter very little to you. So, an observation, if you would allow me. If becoming a Christian has not radically affected your attitude towards money, if you don't feel out of place in the larger American culture of consumerism, if following Jesus isn't forcing you to ask very hard questions about how you spend your money, you may come to church, you may read your Bible, you may do all kinds of Christian things, but you've not yet entered the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's impossible. Now, to illustrate this, I want to remind you of a story that we read in the in our community Bible reading this week about the rich young ruler. And you remember this man, if you're familiar with the Gospels. This man who is very wealthy and very well-liked and, and very moral and very upright comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, what are the commandments? And the man goes through the list and he says, well, all those things I've done. And Jesus, in a very perplexing way, he says, well, there's only one more thing you've got to do. Go and sell your, all your possessions and give them to the poor and then come and follow me. And we're told the man went away sad because he had great riches. Now, why does Jesus do that? I mean, why would Jesus make that kind of demand upon that man? Is it because he's committed to making us miserable? Of course not. I mean, Jesus knows something. He knows something about the way the human heart works, and he goes on to say in the passage, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says it's difficult, the word, I mean, the word really means impossible. And we don't translate it because it sounds, you know, it sounds so harsh and so we, we try to soften it. But it really is, he's saying it is impossible for a rich person to in, enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the disciples come back and say, well, then who can be saved? And he has to say, well, with God, all things are possible. And it's the same in our passage. If you see there in verse 24 again, Jesus says, you cannot 
serve both God and Mammon. The word there is dunamis. It's, it's a power. It's a word that refers to power. He's saying it's impossible. You can't do it. It doesn't work this way. You don't have the power. Now, why is this? Why? Why does it have to work this way? And it's just this. It's because to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be poor in spirit. I mean, do you remember the call to worship we read a few minutes ago? Jesus sets a little child in their midst, and he says, if you want to come into the kingdom, you have to become like this little child. You have to be weak. You have to be needy. You have to be dependent like a little child who depends upon his father and puts his confidence in his father's love. That's the only way you get into the kingdom. And here's what I want to say. And watch. Watch how, I, how tempted I am to water down. I, I just read this paragraph and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm, there I go already watering down what Jesus has said. But I, instead of saying it's impossible, I'm going to say it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to feel weak when you have wealth and the power and the security that wealth brings. I mean, it's almost, it's nearly impossible to have wealth and not begin to put your confidence in it and not begin to trust in it and not to look to it for your identity and your security. I mean, it's almost impossible to have wealth and to not begin to worship it and make it your beauty and to delight in it and serve it and to do whatever you have to do to protect it and to keep it. That's what Jesus is getting at with the rich young ruler. He doesn't know he's needy. This man, he thinks he's competent. He's got everything he needs. And that's the power that money and material possessions have. They easily become gods. You can begin to trust in them and put your confidence in them. You can easily become devoted to them and, as a consequence, begin to despise God. See, that's the, that's the power. That's the power that money and material possessions have. But we need to ask a second question. And that second question is, is why do they have that power? In other words, what do we learn from Jesus about the way our hearts work that explains this. And to answer that question, I want you to focus on another phrase. And this one's in verse 21. If you look in verse 21, you'll see Jesus makes this statement. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now we need to unpack that. The heart for Jesus and in the Bible isn't just the seat of emotions. For people in Jesus' day, the heart was the core of human personality. It, it is the command center of your life. It is the motivational core. The thoughts, the feelings, the desires that drive all of your decision making in your life. And so, for example, Proverbs 4.22 says, guard your heart. Can you, anybody finish that? For it is the, the wellspring of life. It's the source. It's the spring from which Everything else flows. And so sin and obedience, we learn, are not just a matter of outward moral conformity. They're a matter of the heart. They are inward and internal and hidden. Sin and obedience happen at a motivational level deep within the heart. And this is what Jesus is getting at. I mean, the issue is not just what we're commanded to do, remember, but why we do the things we do. What are our motivations? What are our desires? And that's that's why it doesn't just work. It doesn't work to just say, I'm going to buckle down and try harder and make New Year's resolutions, which I'm going to break 10 days later. Because willpower can only get you so far. Christianity is about the heart. It's about the promise of the gospel is the promise of a new heart. And Jesus says that your heart, the command center of your life, is influenced in all that it does by what it treasures. Verse 21. Where your treasure is... There your heart will be. There your heart will go. And so the second thing we've got to do is we've got to talk about what Jesus means by treasure. Now the word tra- translated treasure 
can mean a treasure or a treasury, like the place where you keep things you treasure. My kids on their nightstand or on their um, their little dressers, every one of my kids has a little treasure box, and in that treasure box they keep uh, all the, all the things that you know that they really love in life. But it's so interesting because those things I looked this week, they're full of things like. Uh, little gifts that I've brought back with them, brought back for them from trips overseas or rocks that we've mined for at one of those cheesy rock mining places in North Carolina. Anybody ever done that? You know what I mean? But those, those things are, that's treasure. I mean, that's like diamonds, you know? Or, um, seashells that we collected on the seashore or I think Abby even has acorns from the neighborhood as we've walked around the neighborhood that she just was fascinated with and wanted to keep. I mean, these things are their treasures. They are their valuables. And I guess it's true, as the old saying goes, one, one man's junk is another man's treasure. I mean, because it's not a matter of objective value, but of the value the heart puts on the thing. You see that? It's a matter of the way the heart interacts with the object, and that's what treasures are. A treasure is what you value or cherish. But Jesus is trying to warn us of something very sinister here, and that is this, that treasures quickly become masters. And for Jesus... For Jesus, a treasure is something you put ultimate value in. Your treasure is your significance. It is the thing that makes you feel important or valued or safe. A treasure is what you look for to give you control, to be your security. I mean, to treasure something means to look at something and to fill your heart with the beauty and the value of that thing and to say, oh, if I only, if only I can have that, then everything's going to be okay. I mean, that's a treasure. And what Jesus is trying to teach us is, is that our heart follows our treasures. Our heart follows our treasures. Where our treasures are, there will your heart be also. And so if that's true, then one of the things that you've got to do is we've got to figure out, we've got to go down to a heart level and figure out how our heart is affected by the things we treasure. What are our treasures? What are the things at the center of our hearts that our hearts are pursuing? I mean, what are the things that we treasure in our life? And and so I just want to do a little exercise with you and just we're just going to imagine for a few minutes together and, and do the best we can with this. But Paul Tripp in a book called How People Change offers a number of what he calls x-ray questions to help you discover what your heart treasures. You can Google them, just x-ray questions and either Paul Tripp or David Paulison is the other guy's name. Um, but here's just a couple of them. Just Just think through these things with me for a few minutes, okay? Let's just think as we try to get into our hearts and begin to ask the question what we treasure. Let me ask you some questions. What are, what are your personal goals? What are you working for? What do you fear the most? What's the one thing you feel like you can't live without? What thing or possession or relationship brings you the most joy in your life? Conversely, what causes you the most misery? I like this. What do you find it easy to do? What's it easy for you to get motivated to do? Whose opinion counts the most to you? From whom do you desire approval or fear rejection? What kinds of people do you want to like you? Kids, who do you look up to? Who do you want to be like when you grow up? Who are you modeling your life after and why? Um, what do you really want out of life? What payoff are you seeking in the things you do? I love this question. What do you pray for? What do you think about most often? Where does your mind go 
as you're sleeping, going to sleep at night or the first thing in the morning, what do you talk about the most? You ought to ask somebody that. What a great diagnostic. What do I, what is it that I talk about the most? When, when are you, when do you say this? When in your life do you say, if only? Look at your schedule. What do you spend the most time doing or preparing for? Look at your checkbook. What do you spend your money on? What do you save money for? You see how these questions really penetrate to the heart? They're, they're asking, they're forcing you to ask very hard questions about the motivations and the drives and the desires of your life. And so David Paulson writes, the most basic question which God poses to each human heart is this. Has something or someone beside Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? You need to find out the answer to that question. You need to dig down far enough into your heart to discover the things you're cherishing that are driving your life. What's your treasure? Because if you can find out what your treasure is, then, you're, then, then you need to know your heart's going to follow it. And of course, Jesus is trying to teach us that God and his kingdom should be our treasure. He's going to tell a story later in the, book of, in the Gospel of Matthew about a person, a man who goes out into a field and finds a buried treasure. And, and he's so delighted in the treasure that he's found that he goes back and he willingly sells everything he owns that he might buy the field that contains the treasure. And Jesus says the kingdom of God's like that. I mean, it should be your greatest treasure, but too often we're divided in our loyalties and our affections. And in between verse 24 and verses 21, Jesus uses a metaphor that can be kind of confusing, to be honestly, honestly, to illustrate this. He says, if you look there in verses 22 and 23, that the eye is the lamp of the body, and if it's healthy, then everything else functions properly. But if the eye is bad, then the body has no other way of getting light. Now, what in the world does that have to do with everything else in this passage? Jesus is using the eye's function in the body to illustrate the heart's function in the Christian life. He's paralleling the eyes and the way they work with the heart and the way it works in our lives. And he's saying, if the eye isn't working, then the whole body will stumble around in the dark. Because the only way the body gets light is through the eyes. And in the same way, if the heart doesn't function properly, then nothing else will work right either. And the clue is in the meaning of the word healthy in verse 22. And the Greek word there is a Greek word called haplos. And literally, it's really hard because there's really no equivalent in our own, you know, modern-day English. But the word literally means single or undivided. I mean, a healthy eye is a single eye. And, and we don't really use that language anymore. But translate that to the heart. A healthy heart, Jesus says, is a heart that is single and undivided in its loyalty and its affection. And men, if you need help with that, just ask your wives. I mean, how many marriages survive when the, 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 the spouse's hearts for one another are undivided and their loyalties and their affections are not single for one another? You can't have a wife and a girlfriend and claim to cherish your wife, Right? So there, there's a singleness. And see, that's what money and material possessions do. They divide our hearts. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. So, so then, money and material possessions wield great power over us. And the reason is that they easily become our treasure, that they become the thing we're living for, and they divide our hearts and steal our loyalty and affection away from Jesus and his kingdom. So how do we break their power? How, you know, third point, how do we then come under, you know, come behind the power that these things have in our lives, and how do we break their power? And I want you to go back to answer that question. Go back to verses 20, 19 and 20. 
and 21, and look at what Jesus says there. Jesus says, literally, he says, don't treasure earthly treasures. That's the Greek. Don't store up, don't put away. It really is don't treasure earthly treasures, treasure heavenly treasures. So how do you do it? Don't treasure earthly treasures, treasure heavenly treasures. So that's how you do it. You repent and you rejoice. You repent and you rejoice. So let's just walk through that as we come to the, to the end of our time together, okay? The first, the first step in breaking the power of mammon in your life is you have to repent. You have to see that mammon is powerless to save you. I mean, what gives money and wealth their power? It's that they can give you an identity and security. I mean, they really can, but only to a point. I mean, money can't really make you safe. It can't stop death or tragedy or broken relationships. It can't keep you from getting cancer. The truth, the truth at the end of the day is that money and material possessions are powerless. They never deliver on what they promise. And it's foolishness to put your confidence in anything that is of this world because it might get eaten or it might get stolen. You see that? That's what happens to earthly treasures. It's dangerous to give your heart to any earthly thing because it's liable to get lost or damaged or to eventually just fall apart. I mean, you, if you want to, if you want to see this in my own life, you need to come check out my minivan. We finally got like the minivan of our dream, which isn't that funny. I mean, what got, you know, when I was 19, I wasn't thinking about the minivan of my dreams, but now I have four kids and that's just the way it works. And we finally got this really nice minivan and I am not kidding you within two days. My, my kids have this game they like to play on their scooters where they kind of go around the minivan in the garage. And the problem is, is that they somehow don't miss the minivan as they go around the minivan in the garage. And so there's scrapes down the side of the minivan. And I swear to you, it looks like two cats had a fight on the hood of my minivan. I mean, you should go look at it. It's, I mean, it's just great. And I, and I remember how the first, I was just angry about that. Because this happened like two days after we got the van, right? I mean... It doesn't matter whether it's a minivan or a 401k or, you know, fancy clothes. I mean, Jesus says the problem with putting your heart, you know, giving your heart to something that is earthly is it's liable to get lost or damaged or eventually to get, just fall apart. And so the first step in overcoming the power of mammon in our lives is to name the things your heart treasures, to find out what those things are and to name them and to look at those things and to see how powerless they are and how dangerous they are and to turn away from them and to say, you know, to speak to your heart and to say, I will not give my heart to these things. I will not. To repent. But then the second step, remember you have to repent, but you also have to rejoice. Don't treasure earthly treasures. That's the first part. But instead, treasure heavenly treasures. You see, here's the thing. The goal isn't to rid the heart of its treasures. You can't do that. You can't do that. Part of, part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that you need something to worship. Part of what it means to be a human being is you were created to worship and you're always worshiping. We are all always worshiping something. And so the goal is not to have the heart stripped of its treasures. The goal is that Jesus becomes the treasure. The goal is that we begin to worship Him, that we begin to rejoice in Him instead of all the other things in our lives. Uh, Thomas Chalmers, a Puritan, has this great sermon where he, it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. 
And he says in that sermon, it's kind of dense language, so hang with me, but he says, it is seldom that any of our natural bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. At least it is very seldom that this is done through the instrumentality of reasoning or by the force of mental determination. In other words, he's saying you can't just decide. You know, your heart has been given to something. You can't just decide, you know what, I'm no longer going to pursue that thing. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to do something different. Your heart doesn't work that way. He says, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, and one taste may be made to give way to another and lose its power entirely as the reigning affection in the mind. Here's what he says. However, there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Listen to what he says. He says, its desire for one particular object of ultimate beauty can be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. And he goes on to say, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way, the only way for your heart to be taken off of its treasures is for it to begin to treasure Jesus in their place. He has to become the supreme reigning affection of your heart, Thomas Chalmers says. And Jesus is the new affection he's talking about that can dispossess all of your old affections. So... The question we have to conclude with then is how how does Jesus become your treasure and not money and material possessions? And it starts right here, right here. You have to ask this question of yourself. You have to say, how, how does Jesus Christ give me more fully and graciously and permanently the very things I'm seeking for in money and material possessions? I mean, other treasures will let you down, but he will always come through. Jesus... Jesus will always come through. And here's how you know. Here's how you know. Think about what he did with his treasure. I mean, Jesus had the ultimate treasure. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He owns everything. He had ultimate status. He had the ultimate security. He is the son of God in heaven. And yet, when he was on the cross, he was stripped of all of that. The Apostle Paul says that though he was rich, he willingly became poor He gave up his riches and his status and his security. Now, why would he do that? And the answer the Bible gives is because there's something that he treasured more than riches and status and security, and that something was you. From all eternity, Jesus looked at you and he said, if I could just have her. I mean, from all eternity, Jesus looked at you and he said, if I could just have him. Even dying and going to hell would be worth it. And that's what he did. And if you know, if you can come to know that he feels that way about you, and if you can see him giving up all of his treasures to gain you, then you'll begin to give up your treasures as well to gain him. And the delight and the joy you begin to experience in him will free your heart from the love of money. And here's what will happen. Here's what will happen. You'll start living for heaven. And not here. This is what Jesus says. You'll take your money and you'll use it for Jesus' sake to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And, and here's what he says. You'll be, you're going to start to be really generous. Uh, verse 22, when he says the eye is the lamp of the body and if the eye is good, that word has a double meaning. It means single, but it also means generous. And so the consequences of treasuring heavenly treasures, is you start to part with your stuff because they don't mean so much to you anymore. I mean, you think little of them. You despise them. You start to look around and you see all the ways you can use your money to, 
to help people and all, all of the ways that you can give it away and, and how you can strip your life of unnecessary luxury so that other people can have what they need. I mean, the early church, we read, sold their property and their possessions and gave to those who were needy. They held uh, their money and their material possessions loosely because they had become citizens of a different country. And that's the work he's trying to do in our lives too. He's trying to teach us to be immigrants into the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, we cherish Jesus Christ above all things. We're devoted to him. And the consequence is, is money no longer has any power over our lives. We despise it. We think little of it. (laughs) But if you're like me, man, I got a lot of work to do. He's got a lot of work to do in me because I'm not there yet. But boy, he's committed to getting me there. I mean, that, he's committed to my entering into the kingdom. And again, he says, you cannot, you cannot enter the kingdom unless you become like a little child. Unless you say goodbye to all the treasures your heart has treasured for so long and turn to him. And so that's why it's so fitting that we celebrate this meal together this morning. And I ask that you would pray with me as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. So will you pray with me? Lord Jesus. Uh, become our treasure. Uh, Would you so reveal yourself to us that all of our affections uh, are dispossessed by the sight of your beauty and your glory? Would you come and would would you make our hearts dull to the things we've given them to? And would you give us faith to see you, eyes to see you, Uh, in the beauty of your death for us. And may it transform us, may it make our hearts alive with love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, here's why this table is fitting for us to come to this morning. When Jesus treasured you, he treasured you sacrificially. That's what this table teaches us. Here is his body broken for you and his blood shed for you. So I want you to see, treasuring you cost Jesus his life, and he willingly gave it to get you. Now here's what this means. Coming to this table and partaking of his body and blood is the celebration of that, but it also calls for a response. And if you want to respond to Jesus, then the Bible tells you how to do that, that you must begin to live out the cross of Jesus Christ in your relationships, but also, and I love this, that you also have to begin to live out the cross economically. And here's what I mean by that. What does it mean to love others as Jesus Christ has loved you? It means, you know, you have to give enough money away that it sacrifices your lifestyle. I mean, literally, you have, there has to be a cross in your finances. There has to be a cross in your economic life. There has to be sacrifice. You have to hurt. You have to go without. Because he hurt, and he went without, and he gave up everything to have you. And he calls you to follow him. And if that's true... I just want you to know you will never do that until you treasure him above all other earthly treasures. He has to become the thing that is most beautiful to you and you have to fill your heart with his beauty until you find yourself saying, if only I can have him, I will part with everything and it will be okay. That's why this table is so important in our life together as a church because it is a means of grace. It is a means of revealing to us the heart of Jesus for us to dislodge us and to dislodge our hearts from the treasures we've given ourselves to. It is here that we see him in all of his beauty, and our hearts come alive with faith, that we find the courage and the energy to repent and to come and to rejoice. We come to this table to rejoice. Now, I need to, I need to 
pastor you and, and uh, shepherd you through three areas of self-examination as you prepare your hearts to come to this table. The first, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you belong to him? Um, if so, then this, this meal is for you. This is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not the table of the Church of Redeemer, not the table of the Presbyterian Church in America. This is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it belongs to those who have put their faith in him. If you've not, if you have not intentionally come to a place where you've put your faith in him, come and talk to me. Talk to Jonathan. Talk to some of the leaders, and let's, let's make that official. And then you can come next month and celebrate this meal with us. But secondly, not only faith, but accountability. We understand this to be a public meal, and so it requires a public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ. Has there been a time in your life where you've gone public with your intention to follow Jesus and to trust in him for your salvation? If not, come and join us. We'd love to have you. But think through those things as a matter of self-examination. And the third is just this, is are you at peace? This is a table where we celebrate the reconciliation that is ours in Christ Jesus, that through him we are reconciled to the Father. And the scripture is very clear that it would be great hypocrisy for us to come and to eat this meal, celebrating our reconciliation with him, if we have need to be reconciled to one another. And so if there's work for you to do in a relationship, we would, we would coach you to go. The scripture says, go and make that right. If you've been sinned against, go. If you have sinned against, go. First, get that right, and then come and celebrate this. So, matters of self-examination for you as we come to the table this morning. Now, here's how this works. We're going to have four stations here in the front, two on this side and two on this side. If you would come down the center aisle, take the bread and the cup, proceed back up the, out, you know, the outside aisle, return to your seat. Once everybody's been served, then we'll celebrate the meal together. One more thing. We realize that, that uh, there may be need for you as you examine your heart, as you pray and prepare your heart to celebrate this meal, that, that you might just need somebody to pray for you or, or you might need to confess sin or you might just need somebody to, to put their arm around you and tell you it's going to be okay. Uh, Jonathan and Ron Avery are going to be positioned in the corners of the room, if you have need for somebody to just put their hands on you and pray for you, for healing, for emotional healing, healing in a relationship, physical healing, whatever you might need prayer for, these guys are going to be available to you and you can take advantage of that as well while we celebrate this time together, okay? Uh, We come, again, repenting, but also come to rejoice. So we come to the table of the Lord. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, we're told he took bread... And after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body broken for you. And after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this covenant, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus has commanded us to eat and to drink. And in so doing, he promises to be with us and that we might be with him. Uh, And so we come uh, just that, to feast with him to feast on him and to do it together. So let's pray that, that we would come. And as, as I pray, if you're helping me serve this morning, would you come on up? So if you're servers and you're helping, please come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for the abundant provision that you have made for us in giving to us this supper to be at the very center of our lives together as a church throughout the centuries as we wait for you to return. Would you come and do what you promised to do? Would you come in these moments as we celebrate this meal together and would you give us hearts to freely repent? Would you give us hearts that become unattached to the treasures we've given ourselves to 
And in taking your body and your blood to our lips, would we become more and more attached to you and would we come to treasure you more and more? And may that produce fruit and may that fruit be to your glory. So come near to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Um, as you feel led, you come. Uh, what great news that this table celebrates that Jesus is not a savior of people who are competent and strong in themselves. He is a savior of the weak and the guilty and the broken. He's a savior of sinners. And so we take his body, uh, which is our righteousness, and we take his blood, which is our propitiation, uh, to know that we can come to the Father to be accepted by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So take his body. This is his body for you. And now take the cup. This is his blood shed for you. Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we all confess um, all of the ways that we struggle to be faithful to you, that the scripture comes and and dizzies us with what it asks of us, and and yet we rest in the fact that if we uh, belong to you, if we uh, have put our faith in you, that you accept us, even as you call us to an obedience greater than any we could possibly imagine. And so we ask that that you would both, at, at the same time this morning, cause us to rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, but at the same time, uh, do the repenting and seek to do the rejoicing that is ours to do as we seek to take our hearts off of the treasures that we've given our lives to and to put our hearts on you. Jesus, that you would become our treasure. That we would be a people known for treasuring you, we pray, that, that you would do that in us and that it would cause us to be generous, to be radical in our sacrificial love for one another and to give our stuff away that we might begin to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven and may it be to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As you struggle like I do to repent accordingly and to rejoice accordingly and to find yourself, your affections just all screwed up, uh, the, the way those things begin to get sorted out again is that you stare at, the, at the, the Father and the love that he has won for you because of the work of Jesus and allow it to melt your heart. And so, receive then the benediction, which is the promise that the Father's love now goes with you because of what Jesus has done to save you and not what you've done to save yourself. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.